Hello and welcome to the Leaders in Supply Chain podcast. I am your host, Radu Palamaryu, Managing Director of Elkod Global. Our mission is to connect the supply chain ecosystem in Asia and globally by bringing forward the most interesting leaders in the industry. And it's my pleasure to have with us today Bill Driggert, co-founder and global head of operations of Uber Freight. Uber Freight is the logistics on-demand business of Uber, connecting shippers and trucking companies across the US and Europe. In their own words, we are driven by a simple belief. When shippers and carriers have the freedom to move together, the entire industry moves ahead. Prior to joining Uber, Bill spent time at Amazon as Director of Planning and Innovation with oversight of the new initiatives in final mile delivery and truckload. And he was also a founding uh, team member at Coyote Logistics, which was later on acquired by UPS. And he was also the company's Chief Innovation Officer. Bill, pleasure to have you with us today and thanks for joining us. Yeah, absolutely. It's my pleasure. Happy to be here. Super. So maybe let's start with a little bit of background on yourself and how, how did you, you know, I mean, a little bit also about your career in, in logistics and how you ended up, uh, you know, leading to Uber Freight and at Uber Freight in general. Yeah, absolutely. So I've been in freight and, and logistics since 2006 and I've been in operations for my, my whole career. Uh, most of my time in freight, I've either been building businesses. So 2006, I uh, helped get Coyote started uh, and build that up or... Also thinking about technology and how to make freight more efficient through technology. So, um, you know, with that, I, I started thinking about this concept of Uber Freight uh, as early as it was about 2012. Uh, I wasn't the only one thinking about Uber Freight. There's actually between 2012 and 2016, there were something like 40 companies uh, starting to call themselves the Uber for Freight. Uh, but I remember putting a PowerPoint together back in 2012 about how, how we should build the Uber for Freight. Um, and how execution could be simplified through technology. Uh, so with that, and through a kind of a series of fortunate connections, I got uh, introduced to the team at Auto Trucking and Leo Ron. So Auto Trucking was the autonomous trucking company that got acquired uh, by Uber. Uh, in, in early 2016, I got connected with them. We started talking about uh, go-to-market strategies for the autonomous tech. Uh, that actually uh, evolved into a conversation around an Uber for freight-like product. And then when Uber was Uber came in and acquired Auto, uh, there had actually simultaneously been a team at Uber who had been working on a similar problem and kind of pitching the idea of a freight product within Uber. So once that acquisition went through, the two teams came together. Uh, that became the seed of the freight business. Uh, and then uh, that was when we, we started just building freight. That was September of 2016. Yes. I mean, it's, it's, um, it's fascinating how, I mean, I think Steve Jobs said it, right, that uh, you have to look backwards to connect the dots. So <laughs> it seems like there was, there's, there's clearly a pattern in your, in your career around that. Um, and, and maybe tell us a little bit, because I know that I'll, I'll, I'll go a little bit to the, to the question uh, after the, 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 the first question that I had in mind is like on, on the pricing and transparency side, right? Because Uber Freight um, says that, that basically you're the only provider in the truckload market that has a 100% transparency on the rates. How does that work? How does your pricing model work? And how are you able to provide that, uh, you know, that, that type of uh, transparency? Yeah, absolutely. So ever since we started, we thought fundamentally we wanted to make the market more transparent and efficient and reliable. Uh, and we knew to do that, pricing transparency would be a key piece of that. Uh, for a variety of reasons, but the simplest way to think about it is if, if I'm a driver and I'm trying to make a quick decision and I'm trying to get information about the market, knowing that I have a 
price that I can just, where I can just hit a button and it's a committed price. That allows me to make better decisions. It also allows me to make faster decisions and commit to freight more quickly, which makes the market more efficient. So that was always something that we thought would be critical as we built out the market. On the back end, to get real-time pricing, uh, we have a team of data scientists who's continually looking at inputs, which include kind of what we've executed at before, so prior pricing history. We also have third-party pricing data. Particularly in the U.S., there are uh, now several companies which provide data on market prices and market movements, both historical and real-time. So we're able to use that data to help kind of dial in our own internal models. Uh, but really, it's, it's our own engines. We've developed uh, kind of bottoms-up estimates of what we think pricing is per lane, as well as we've then taken all the external data. Uh, we also take real-time signals about what's going on in the market. So we're, we're big enough now, and we have enough scale and enough usage that uh, we have pretty strong signals about uh, demand in a given market. So if, a, if, if we see that 100 drivers in uh, you know, Portland, Oregon are all looking at one single load, we know that there's probably high demand for that load. We also know that if a load gets booked within one second, which we've seen happen, uh, that there's high demand for that load. So all of these things feed into the pricing engine, and then we dynamically adjust those prices in real time. So today, every single price that a carrier sees is generated dynamically. Those prices, they also adjust. So if a load is not moving, if nobody's looking at a load or uh, it doesn't seem that it's attractive in the market, that load, that price will start to, to creep up uh, over time. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Um, and, and what would be, I mean, when you're talking about, you know, this, this, is, this is a dynamic uh, uh, pricing allocation and a dynamic, you know, pricing modeling, but then also you, you've, you've grown tremendously, right? So, I mean, I think I was looking at, you know, uh, I can't remember the exact numbers, but, you know, over the last, uh, over the last couple of quarters, it's been a significant growth in the Uber freight side of the business. That comes with challenges and that comes also with, you know, with the, uh, obviously, with with uh, uh, things that you need to improve and and keep up with and 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 further fast track on the operation side. Tell us a little bit about that. What's your you know biggest problems right now, and how are you tackling it on the operation side? Yeah, so I think you, you touched on it. The number one challenge within operations is just keeping up with the the rate at which we're scaling. I think hyperscaling has some very unique challenges. I think the the core challenge is is ensuring that the infrastructure is keeping up with the organization. Um, hiring, of course, is also a significant challenge, but uh, within that, you have, we have managers or employees that are, are uh, having to scale within their role very quickly as well, so making sure we provide the support systems and the infrastructure to do that. We have managers that came on board managing one to two people that are all now managing over 100 within a very short period of time. Uh, so we have to be continually mindful that we're kind of evolving the organization with that. And, the way that I think about that, I actually have a, a rubric, my, my four M's uh, that I, uh, the four M's of infrastructure. So it's management, uh, making sure that we have uh, the right managers and we're thinking ahead uh, and always hiring ahead. I think it's very important to have leadership before you need it uh, so that you can fill in those leaders as the organization grows versus trying to scramble and up-level leaders who may or may not be uh, ready. The other piece is metrics. Uh, so it's critical that uh, you have the right data so that you have the right signals about the organization because as the org continues to scale, uh, you can quickly lose sight of what's happening on the ground and you won't necessarily get those signals unless you've been very diligent about getting the right reports and metrics and data along the way and putting that in place. 
Um, the other is, uh, is meetings. So uh, it, it's pretty fundamental, but making sure that you're meeting with the right people and having the right face-to-faces and continually evaluating that because who you meet with needs to be changing as you're hyperscaling because you need to be getting different signals, making sure that you're getting that kind of one-on-one signal from individuals. Um, and the last is, is messaging. So as you scale, the communications across the organization could quickly break down and all of a sudden, particularly from the leadership uh, level, you identify that you've got a blind spot because you're not hearing the right things or the messaging isn't there. Um, so ensuring that if, if it's a weekly update or uh, again, back to the metrics, if that's being compiled in the right way so that you have signals on the organization. So those, those are the, for me, the four M's of hyperscaling and uh, how I think about um, uh, what's important to continually evaluate uh, at each quarter as we continue to scale. Um, but yeah, it's, that's been the core challenge is just, and, and you never get it perfect. And, and another part of hyperscaling is, is, is being super diligent in prioritization uh, to make sure that some things may not be working, but they may not be important. Uh, and to always ensure that you're focusing on the areas of the business which are uh, uh, priority or the most out of line with the scale at which you're at. Yes. Uh, very. Well, I mean, I like I like the the four M's. Uh, I mean, it's also easy to remember, right? So, uh, uh, yeah, management, metrics, meetings, messaging. Very good. I mean, I'll I'll, I'll take that. I'll 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 uh, steal it from you. <laughs> so, thanks for sharing. Um, how about let's talk a little bit about you know because uh, in the in the world there's 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 basically everywhere I think that there's uh, there's uh, trucker shortages right so in in the US we we have it you have it in in Europe there are there are quite a few maybe Asia is slightly less but but definitely in US and and Europe it's a problem it's a big problem what type of initiatives are you um, if any um, are you taking to uh, to kind of tackle this yeah we. Um... We've been very carrier-obsessed since day one, and the reason is that when we looked at this market to see where the biggest problems were, uh, we quickly realized it was on the carrier side, uh, and that in almost all markets we look at worldwide, uh, the carrier uh, ecosystem is highly fragmented. Uh, in the U.S., uh, you know, over 85% of carriers have fewer than 10 trucks, so you, there's a lot of very small carriers, and those small carriers typically have a hard go of it. Um, Shippers you know, don't have great payment terms. Carriers have a hard time finding good freight. Uh, carriers have a hard time retaining talent. Uh, and if I'm a new owner-operator who just entered the market, uh, I have a very hard time getting access to good freight. It's just a very difficult uh, market to operate in. And if I'm a new driver and I go work for a big carrier, well, they typically have seniority rules, which mean that I'm not getting the best freight and my quality of life may suffer as a result. So what we see is that drivers are entering the market at a steady pace, but they're leaving it even faster, right? which, uh, which means they enter and they have a tough go of it and they, and they leave. So fundamentally, we think that the number one thing we can do to keep drivers in the market is to give them more work options and to make the market more accessible. Um, there was a great quote early on by one of our early drivers that said, liberate the freight, right? He's an owner-operator and... Historically, he always had to call and negotiate, and it was a hard time finding freight, and all of a sudden, he just hit a button and get it. Uh, so we think that the number one thing we can do is, is uh, making the market more transparent and more efficient and allowing drivers to have that immediate access to freight and keep their trucks moving so that they don't have to spend as much time just chasing down good freight. 
Beyond that, we think it's also important for us uh, to find ways to lower the cost to operate, to improve the operating environment for carriers. Uh, there's several ways that we're doing that. Is, is one, uh, we have a program called Freight Plus, which is really a basket of a whole set of discounts that we've been able to negotiate given our scale uh, with uh, providers such as tire manufacturers and fuel manufacturers and even health insurance providers where we can provide carriers uh, and big fleet level discounts with companies providing many of their core consumables. And so lowering their operating costs is key. Um, giving them access to good freight uh, is key. And then improving their experience on the road. So the other thing that we've done is we have facility ratings where carriers can rate facilities, they can get transparent information on how those facilities operate. But we're also then going back to those facilities and working with them so reaching out to customers and saying, how can we help you improve the operations of these facilities? Because carriers you know, aren't having a good experience. They're being detained. Maybe they aren't good. Uh, uh, maybe they just don't have good amenities of the facility. There's a variety of reasons why a carrier can have a bad experience at the facility. That's something we heard from, from carriers as well. So we're trying to tackle this problem uh, on multiple fronts. Uh, and we think that, you know, Uber being Uber, we have the resources and through technology and through partnerships with other companies, we can make this whole ecosystem more friendly to drivers uh, and to carriers. Uh, now that we've launched in Europe, we're taking a similar uh, approach in Europe and trying to identify how we can uh, kind of improve that market. But ultimately, driving and being a carrier is a tough job. And so whatever we can do to make that job a little bit easier, we think that will go a long way in keeping drivers in the market. And I'm just wondering, because, I mean, at the end of the day, uh, basically, also, I can imagine that the big uh, challenge that you're, you're basically solving for, especially the smaller, the medium-sized trucking company and carriers, is the fact that they, they all of a sudden can get access to uh, good freight, to big companies that typically yeah. maybe would have tender processes and would have, you know, uh, 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 preferential contracts with large uh, carriers and, and operators. It's, it's almost like it's a little bit of a syndicate in, in, in some ways. I mean, maybe for lack of a better word. Um, but I'm, I'm also being cognizant of the fact that um, corporate accounts in general, and there is a behavior that they tend or they used to choose the freight providers, long-term partnerships, low risk, and they try to, you know, obviously keep uh, uh, their risks very low. So there's, there's a little bit of a dichotomy, right? Because uh, mm -hmm. if, I am a, if I am a shipper, you know, I want to make sure that uh, obviously my freight is in good hands and is, in, is, is, is safe. And, and, uh, and for that reason, typically the bigger carriers would get the, the job or would get the contract. How does it work in the in the Uber freight model, right? Because you're kind of enabling that, and I still think that uh, there's and obviously there's certain freight. I mean, like healthcare, which I'm pretty sure, or, or life sciences, or I'm pretty sure that those guys would not be using Uber freight for the moment because it's very uh, specific conditions of transportation. But for other type of freight, when you're talking, you moved uh, in Europe. I think your first client was Heineken, or or mm -hmm. was it Heineken? Yeah. yeah. How how does that work? You know, from that you know risk perspective of big corporate accounts. Yeah, I would. Um, so we are, when we go to a big corporate account or big enterprise customer, we are, are also looking to build a, a long-term relationship and a long-term contractual relationship. Um, because what we've seen, there is a de definitely a difference between Europe and the U.S. And that I'd say in the U.S., um, shippers are more comfortable uh, allocating freight across a bigger set of providers and taking a little more risk is where in Europe we see more more of that single sourcing for a division or the longer term commitments uh, to, to providers. Um, but we understand that 
shippers, they, they don't want to take on more rate risk uh, and they want to have a certainty of capacity as well. And for us, we can, we, we can provide that. In fact, a big part of, I think, our advantage is because we built this very efficient execution platform. It's actually a very reliable platform. So a lot of why we're having success with shippers is that we're able to source capacity uh, in, any, in any market because we have this kind of preferred access to, sh to carriers because they're logging in 24-7 and they know they're going to get paid quickly and they, you know, they, they tend to go to our load board first before they pick up the phone and call other people, which gives us certain amount of resiliency, but internally we bear a lot of risk. So we are always buying uh, in, in real time uh, under current market conditions. So for us, we may have a commitment to a shipper at a fixed rate, uh, say you know, 1,000 euros. Uh, we may buy one day at 800 and the next day at, at 1,200 uh, in the market. So we are providing that commitment to the big shippers where they have the certainty and we can operate within that, uh, that context and those sorts of commitments, but we then buy in real time. And uh, part of what we then provide is that, uh, that stability to the shippers, right? Well, we know that we can execute well and source that capacity. And as we build more data about the markets, we have a very good understanding of how that market may go up and down throughout the year, throughout the season. Uh, and so the shipper doesn't necessarily have to bear that. I think one thing to understand uh, too, is from a shipper perspective, there always is some rate risk and coverage risk. Uh, and it varies depending on how they've structured the contracts, but the longer the contract and the less risk there is, then there is a cost to that because ultimately on the carrier side, uh, the carriers have to be able to manage their costs as well. So there's always going to be some trade-off between those things. Uh, and I do believe long-term that more and more freight will, will move towards not necessarily spot where every load is, is floating, but to more real-time rate commitments where rates and contract terms are generated in real-time uh, and through direct APIs. Uh, so we view the role that we play as very much making this efficient market where we can always source capacity whatever price is needed to move that load on a given day, which is a very kind of service-oriented approach. Uh, but we understand on the shipper side that we also need to then be able to intelligently price that in a way that we can commit long-term and that the shippers can control their costs and understand the risks and the risk versus cost trade-off. And, and I love, maybe let's take, take a moment to, to um, let me ask you for some case studies or some examples in terms of your work with shippers and where you tangibly and, and you know, from a, either operational cost or efficiency or risk management, or maybe you have certain examples, and I'm sure you do, uh, where you started working with, especially the, with the bigger clients. Let's take bigger clients and bigger shipper because, shippers because uh, um, I think that would, mm -hmm. be, would be interesting, and maybe we can also take a, a smaller one. Um, but just to kind of look at how did Uber Freight help them uh, tangibly and, and specifically? Yeah, so I'll give a, um, an example from way back in 2017, which is, it's one of my favorite examples because it was the first time we really saw the benefit of the real-time execution, which was when Hurricane Harvey came through. So Hurricane Harvey came through and it came through during the week. And so it was, a, it was Friday evening or late Friday when shippers really started to react and to try to get freight into the, uh, the uh, hurricane zone, which was Houston, Texas. And so Friday evening, we started getting calls um, from our partners, both Anheuser-Busch and, and Niagara Bottling, who were trying to ship water into the, uh, into the area. And because, and, and 
this isn't a contractual example. This is more of a, I'd say, resiliency and a sourcing example of how we were able to find capacity quickly and instantaneously. Um, they called us, they started sending uh, loads, uh, and we started putting those loads onto the platform. What we saw is those loads were moving in minutes, and we were able to then get a very quick, clear signal on the market. Uh, and we could do that because we already knew where those drivers were. We could see that they had been logging into the application, and we could send them instantaneously, send notifications and text because they were in the area. Uh, and so we had drivers logging in on a Friday night when other, other providers weren't picking up the phone or even responding. Uh, and so in the end, we were able to move 137 loads, and it was one individual that was managing all that freight coming in. And that just, that sort of efficiency and response uh, would be incredibly difficult in a, a traditional uh, environment. Um, and that's an example of where uh, we were able to, like, to one, discover the price in the market very quickly, and thereby we were actually able to price more effectively. So when those uh, shippers were able to get other providers on the phone, they were typically pricing with a rate where they were trying to manage their risk. So because it was such a unique circumstance, they had no idea what the price was. Uh, so they may say, oh, it's you know $5,000 because they don't know until they start picking up the phone and calling carriers. And then when they call the carriers, they start negotiating and then they're doing price discovery. That's where we were able to take a little bit of a risk and start putting freight out immediately at a lower price uh, and immediately get a signal and know that the market was clearing, which allowed us to tailor the prices within minutes versus what would have traditionally taken hours. Um, so the reason that's important is because most of the budget creep within large shippers happens in these kind of unforeseen circumstances, peak moments, holidays, or uh, like capacity, just capacity situations which may not have been well predicted or, for, or forecasted. And it's in those times where being able to access the, the trucks quickly and react quickly allows us to buy better is where I think of it like surge pricing, right? So if you don't have a good execution mechanism, your surge price may be 5x normal. Uh, the more efficient your execution, maybe the surge price is only 70% more. Uh, and so that allows us to better control the rates across the year because we're better able to handle those instances when the rates are really surging or getting out of whack. Uh, which allows us to make a better commitment than long-term to, to shippers. So with, uh, with several of those customers, actually Niagara included, as, we, as we've gone into contractual negotiations too, then because we have that data, because we have the understanding across the year and when it might surge and we know we're able to execute, uh, we're able to price them that contract more effectively and then lock in at a very high service. Uh, another good actually example of, of that is, uh, so this year, uh, it's been a pretty soft market, but uh, and so acceptance rates have been pretty high for carriers. But if you look in the U.S., uh, Freight Waves publishes an index, and I, they, they publish an index which tells what percent of tenders get rejected. And I think the lowest that number got to was four to five percent, meaning that if you look at the inverse, that means ninety-five percent of freight being tendered to carriers is being accepted, and four percent to five percent is being rejected. We tend to track at the 99% to 100% rate, and uh, we recently did a presentation with Land O'Lakes, and with Land O'Lakes, uh, year-to-date, we've tracked, we've taken 100% of all freight tendered to us. Uh, and again, that's the contractual commitment, where because we know that we can source that effectively even when it surges and we have that execution capability, then when we commit to a rate, it's a committed rate, right? Because where historically the, the rate commitments have always not been firm, at least in the U.S., no, that's 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 uh, fantastic. Actually, I mean, obviously, uh, 
that's that's a big problem for uh, for the shippers when they can't find that five percent yeah. of the loads to to be moved uh, that 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 can create a lot of inconveniences um, and 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 headaches. With that, I, I'm also wondering, you know, what's uh, some sort of a new question in my my mind? You know, when you sell to new new again, let's take big corporates, right, for a moment. When you sell to big corporate accounts, or you try, you're in the process of selling, you're in the business development side. What's some of the typical biggest challenges and biggest uh, points where you really need to convince them to take up the Uber Freight solution? What tends to be the biggest blockers when it comes to them adopting the the, the platform? Yeah, I think early on, it was a lot of just educating what Uber Freight is. So a, a lot of times, I think people are grounded in Uber and they understand Uber. Um, and trying to relate that to freight, uh, there's an assumption that, okay, my, as a shipper, will I download an app? Do I have to download an app? Or are you, only, are you sourcing anybody um, on the carrier side? Are you sourcing drivers directly? Uh, so getting over those humps that, you know, we are... Uh, from a shipper side, right, we're, in, we're interfacing directly with your, your, uh, your TMS and on the driver side, we're working through carriers and we have a very robust safety and compliance process. So it's usually a little bit of just education. I think from a shipper perspective, though, we've had a lot of, I think, a, a huge amount of success because um, people understand the value of Uber. And so uh, people understand that Uber has been able to build out this massive operational capability uh, in, in personal transportation. So there's a certain amount of trust that comes with it where uh, there's a little education around, okay, well, then how does that Uber translate to Uber Freight? Uh, but once we get past that, there's this huge amount of buy-in around the fact that Uber has proven that, they, that we can execute, that we, have, that we are this uh, uh, technology leader and that we've been able to translate this uh, very real-world operating environment into a uh, very robust technology platform. So it's um, the, once we get through that education, then I would say the, then it's more of a just, the, I'd say, a very traditional uh, process and that shippers will typically, uh, in, in this industry, across the world, be conservative with their initial allocation. So they say, great, we were afraid. We, we trust you've got the technology, but uh, and we know that you that historically you've had this operational capability. But now prove it to me. So there's usually a little bit of a, a period where you know, we we'll get a, a lane here or access to the spot board, prove out that uh, we can actually deliver, and that's when uh, it's more important than anything just to outservice the freight. And that's really where the advantages of the platform become obvious because they say, okay, well, you took every load that I sent you, you serviced it at a good rate showed up on time, um, now I'm comfortable, and now I'm willing to expand our relationship. And so most of our, uh, our growth comes uh, in, in that uh, like ongoing development of the relationship with the customer, meaning that if, we, uh, if, we, if I look at 2019 and where all of our growth has come, it's come from customers that we landed maybe 12 months ago that were testing us out, building relationship, uh, understanding our capabilities. And then now that they understand them, they're starting to, to scale those up. Uh, so there haven't been, uh, I'd say, significant challenges or pushback other than just conservatism in their approach to market. And that some customers may be uh, a little more conservative and, and kind of slow to make changes within their network. Um, and 
Within that, though, it, it's a little bit different in Europe in that, as we discussed earlier, there's a, there can be more single sourcing and contractual periods can be long, so that process is just longer. But within any transportation department, I'd say there's usually a, a pretty strong appetite to test a new provider um, because there's, it's possible to do that in a pretty controlled way. Uh, and then if that provider um, you know, demonstrates value, then uh, it can continue to scale. So, um, so yeah, I'd say it's been one of the things that I've been most uh, impressed with is our our sales team's ability to just get in the door with so many very large shippers. And even very early on, we had a lot of buy-in from, from big enterprise shippers. You know, Anheuser-Busch is a customer that we've uh, in public with, Niagara as well. They came on very early before the technology was really developed because they understood the vision and they understood what Uber could bring to market. Um, and I think like anything, you have your early adopters who are willing and, and eager to try out new approaches to market and want to test that out and help develop that within their own uh, operations. And then you have the kind of the late adopters who are always going to be a little more conservative um, and cautious, and they want to know that we like, have scale and that we really deliver before they uh, test us out. Yeah. Uh, and I'm curious a little bit about, uh, and a lot of people are, uh, a little bit about your European uh, expansion. So now you're, you're driving that. You're, you actually you are in Amsterdam as we speak. Um, yeah. <clears throat> And, and you're aggressively developing uh, the market. How does success look like for you in, in Europe? Like, uh, you know, what's your, you know, let's say in a couple of years, what's your, you know, what's your ideal state? Uh, how would you measure that? Okay, Uber Freight has been very successful at, at, at conquering, let's say, <laughs> the European market. Yeah, I'd say the, um, yeah, Europe is a, uh, it's a very interesting market because it's, uh, is, as we looked internationally and we thought about where we want to go next, Europe was, was always uh, at the top of that list and primarily because we had a lot of um, customer interest, particularly for the customers that we work with in the U.S. that also had operations uh, in Europe. Uh, as we've come to market, I, I think we, we had a few concerns around how well all of our technology and, and all of our processes would translate to Europe. Uh, one of the advantages though that we had is that when we launched in the US, we had no tech. We, we started operations on the same day we started building the technology. So it took us uh, seven to eight months to get the tech out the door as we were scaling initially, but we don't have that challenge in Europe. We were able to launch with our own platform with the tech from day one. Uh, so now it's, uh, it's more about how do we then continue to evolve that product for, for European needs and, um, and tailor it to each, uh, you know, each particular uh, uh, region and language and carrier type uh, across Europe. So to your question about what does success look like, uh, we have similar aspirations in Europe that we did in the U.S. We see similar opportunities, similar challenges. It's a highly fragmented carrier environment. Some of the unique challenges are the, say, the east-west divide and, and cabotage laws and some of the other kind of regulatory differences that you don't see in other markets and how to manage around that. We are working very closely with regulatory authorities and uh, policy bodies and carry groups to really understand how to, to localize our engagement as we, as we expand to each country. So I can't share specifically with other markets, but clearly our intentions are to expand across uh, Europe. And um, as we do that, we are being, I'd say, very thoughtful about how to, how to engage with each market uh, as each market has slightly different concerns. Uh, 
Uh, so I'd say success, um, success in five years would be to have that trans-European presence, uh, to feel like we did a great job along the way of really engaging each of the, the local uh, uh, regulatory authorities as well as uh, carrier groups and that uh, we have a strong presence really within each of those and that we're adding value. So to me, ultimate success is that in five years from now, if you talk to any carrier, they say, yeah, Uber Freight, it's great. I use it for you know, a, big, a big part of my business and it's so easy and, it's, and, and then they can speak to all the ways in which we've added value and, and made their operations easier and you know, made them uh, you know, stay in the business. And right, that, that would be a success factor. And then on the shipper side, uh, a success factor versus a success to me would be shippers being able to uh, tell a similar story to say, you know, I was, I had no visibility before all of a sudden I had uh, you know, perfect visibility and I, I rethought the way that I do operations because all of a sudden I have this real time access to pricing and capacity. I never worry anymore about whether I need a truck and say, you know, one particular region where I had struggles before because all of a sudden I know that I can see exactly what's going on. I can make decisions about my operation and proactively plan around potential capacity shifts or seasonal shifts because I, I, I have that visibility and that access. And as I'm making my own planning decisions, now I all of a sudden have better information around price and capacity. Right? So that would be uh, success as well. Um, so yeah, that's, I think that's the easiest, the way I always think about it is from the in-state, from, from our customers, our shippers and our carriers. And what would I want them to be able to say about Uber Freight uh, five years down the road? Mm. Yeah, client first. Um, and I'm just curious, another question that came into my mind, um, because US, one block of land, you know, uh, fairly compact. Europe, one block of land. Okay, there's a little bit more complexity in terms of regulation. Still, you have European Union, so there is a, a common fundamental foundation, let's say, or, or, or uh, uh, yeah, kind of, you know, the fundamentals are the same, but then each country has, has certain certain. Um, uh, a unique set of rules and then if you step out of the European Union obviously it's, it's different but how about uh, Asia or how about yeah Asia let's let's talk Asia I mean have you I'm sure you have considered right um, and I also know that there are some entrenched uh, I mean in India there's again big block of land is India one one other one is of course China maybe Indochina with with Thailand Cambodia Laos that area have you considered also at some point or are you considering also at some point coming to Asia or not not really I would say that all options are on the table. Um, the, if you look at global uh, truckload transportation, domestic transportation markets or ground transportation markets, uh, China is number one, US is number two, um, and then Europe is number three. And then you've got you know, Brazil, India, um, you know, Middle East Africa. Like there's, if you look at Uber's presence and where we've had success, that also dictates somewhat where we, what we're thinking about expanding because uh, I think one of the huge advantages of Uber is that we do have this global presence and it's always been a global company. So uh, the expectation with Freight was always that it would similarly be a global company. And a lot of those global teams engaged very early to, and I would get emails in my inbox from you know the GM of say Australia saying hey like when are you coming here I, I already did all the research and here's the plan and here's and here's why you need to come here um, so certainly we have we have done a lot of research because we've also had teams across the world that are very eager and interested uh, and uh, would love to see 
freight would be the next major uh, launch within Uber within their region. So uh, we're, we're absolutely looking at, you know, uh, where could we go next? I can't share at this point like, where that would be or kind of the depth of our research, but I can share at a high level if you look across like the, the world and where there's been investment, there are definitely um, competitors in, uh, in there. You've got BlackBuck and Rubigo. I, uh, there's uh, similar companies in Brazil with you know, Cargo X and, and, and Truckdad, and you've got uh, competitors in, in China, like FTA, of course, is I think the most notable one who's raised significant funding, I think $2 billion Absolutely. now. So, yes. And there's definitely, um, I'd say, in a heating up, the market is heating up globally. And so that's both you know, interesting from our perspective and uh, because it, it informs us about the market and the opportunity, right? Because these these companies are doing diligence; they're they're investing, uh, they're clearly figuring it out as they go. Uh, but it also creates a little bit of uh, pressure, right? So we don't we don't want to wait too long if, if a particular market might be interesting. We've got to be thoughtful about that. But um, I would say at this point, though, there's nothing beyond my focus is on Europe, and that's that's what we're uh, that's what we're yeah. And also, I mean, I mean, ultimately, and, and then of course, I mean, I don't, I didn't expect you to, to to share necessarily the next market, but I was just curious in terms of the, in terms of the the thought process be, behind it, and and also, I mean, pragmatically and practically, you cannot fight in all markets at the same time. I mean, that's just not possible from <laughs> from just practical, um, practical reasons to launch everywhere. Um, but also, I'm I'm uh, I'm cognizant that you know you have Uber, you have Uber Freight, then you have Uber Eats as well, right? And then yeah. that, that, it's yeah. quite it's quite interesting. I mean, since you mentioned, let's just take Australia, right? And I know the Uber Eats is very strong in Australia. Again, there's it, there is a benefit that 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 you Uber as a company indeed has you know in terms of synchronizing the efforts of across the platforms and then you can kind of cross pollinate and 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 use and again Australia is a big chunk of land as well, um, so uh, so that obviously plays in your favor. Um, what I know, obviously, sitting in the, well. Most of the time, I'm in Singapore, but not not really. But you know, in China, there's uh, like you said, there's some massive, massive, and I think it's it's also SoftBank that that uh, that had some massive funding in in the in the company there for the for the tracking uh, sharing, uh, growing quite um, growing quite fast. But uh, there, there's there's a clear indication that um, the future, as you said, is not sport. The future is, you know, is, is platforms. The future is um, transparency and transparency-led type of platform. So, uh, you know, then it's a matter of uh, who gets in first, second, third, <laughs> I guess, in the different markets um, and manages to keep innovating. Um, and, um, and I yeah. wanted to kind of shift because part of the winning the you know winning in in the market and and being the leader or being in the front of a market or part or maybe the biggest part and the most important part is not technology actually it's it's people because mm-hmm. uh, or that's my belief at least because uh, I mean it's also my business being a headhunter I should believe in people <laughs> but also I I think that you know you can have the best technology in the world but ultimately it, it's people that use technology not the other way around so it's always about the human capital and who's driving it so I wanted to bring the discussion a little bit in terms of uh, around uh, you know how do you find and attract the right talent and especially in this high uh, development and scale uh, uh, fast growing type of environment that Uber Freight is, is is in how do you you know how do you do it tell us a little bit you know some secrets or some uh, some things that that have worked for you in terms of finding that right talent to help you grow 
I mean, you've not done it just in Uber. You've, you've done it before in Coyote as well, which was a fast-growing enterprise. You've done it at Amazon. What's your principles that you apply to find right talent? Yeah, no, I think and that's, a, that's the critical capability and the, I think the most important thing that as a leader or any manager on a team, we can be focused on to make sure that we have the right talent, the right team. And we, as Uber Freight, bring talent from a lot of different backgrounds we have deep operational capability. We have engineers, we have data scientists, technologists, uh, sales, sellers, right? It's a very broad base of skills. That's actually one of the things I, I love about Uber Freight is that it is this very diverse set of backgrounds. We have people that come from industry. We have people come from technology in the Valley and your Googles and your, right, of course, the Uber, right? We've got a deep bench of internal transfers that came from Uber. So we've got to mix a lot of different cultures and capabilities. Uh, but with that, too, there's a lot of different profiles. So I think scaling at this rate and at this level, it's important to understand early the right profile for the job, um, meaning that an, you know, an ideal operator right, is not necessarily an ideal product manager or technologist. And I think understanding that and being very aware of that early on and finding the right fit is important um, so that we don't kind of stop and start in terms of defining profiles where you put people in roles they're not happy for. So I think being very thoughtful about organizational design, role definition, scope definition, what are the core competencies for the role? We, I would say that we spent quite a bit of time uh, doing that along the way to make sure that we have uh, roles well-defined. Um, I'd say that attracting talent has actually been um, getting the pipeline built out uh, uh, has been uh, uh, we've, we've had a lot of success with that particularly early on we made a decision to put our operations team in Chicago and I think Uber within Chicago that's uh, a very strong pull and an attraction and I think Uber Freight within Chicago which is a very uh, let's say operations oriented and logistics oriented uh, city and, and talent base uh, had a, a very strong pull to it uh, because I think within Within the freight industry, uh, we have a we have a lot of buzz and, and I'd say excitement around us. And when we entered the market, uh, we were able to leverage that to get a, a lot of inbound interest. As we looked at um, on the engineering side, San Francisco is a very competitive market. You've got Fan, you've got you know, Facebook and Apple and Netflix and Google and everybody else that's always fighting for the best possible engineers. And as a result, you have this huge pool of amazing engineers and amazing uh, technologists, but it's a very tough competition. So it's a very unique environment and we have to, I think, take a slightly different uh, approach there. It has its own set of challenges. Um, and as we've come to uh, Amsterdam, I think this is where we were able to, again, positive momentum. I think Uber is able to attract amazing talent. We had a lot of great internal talent that had high interest in, in, in joining the team. Uh, so we, we've had to take a slightly different um, strategy as we go to, I'd say, each market and as we focus on each team. Uh, and, you know, there's different challenges, I'd say, by uh, employee type. Uh, I think the, we would have been in a much tougher situation if we hadn't spent the, the time to appropriately define every one of those roles. And I'd say that if I look historically where we did have challenges, it was exactly because of that, where we started to build a team out we realized that the profile wasn't really a good fit for the role and we had to make adjustments, redefine the role and adjust those, uh, uh, those teams. So 
again, I think that's uh, like the number one way to proactively uh, work around those challenges is just to be as precise as possible in the role, uh, the role definitions, uh, which requires, of course, being thoughtful about strategy and expansion and operational planning and all the rest uh, to make sure that all the pieces are lined up well. And, and again, probably to your point with, you know, when you started in the U.S., you had to build the tech as you, as you started the company in, uh, yeah. or, uh, in, in Europe, you already have a model and then you can, you can kind of duplicate it to a certain extent. Um, I guess that also comes with, uh, you know, failing it, test and, test and fail and, and learn from, from mistakes um, uh, also in terms of JDs and in terms of defining roles. Um, yeah. But I'm just I'm just curious on one particular element, which is you you mentioned right. One person starts at managing one two people, and then in a fairly short duration of time, six twelve months, I don't know, it can uh, something like that. It can end up leading a team of one hundred. Um, I know Daniel, right? So Daniel is leading your your European operations, and he came from Uber. So I think you know internal transfer. It's easy because in some ways, right? Because Uber already experienced that high growth type of trajectory. Yeah. But if you were to hire somebody. Uh, outside of the organization, let's say, right? How would you know that, because you, again, your principle, right? Think forward, you know, can this person adapt and learn and, you know, okay, do the job now, but in 12 months, that job will probably grow 10 times or, or God knows, right? So how, are there certain principles that you apply to be able to tell if that person is able to do it? What's your, what's your barometer or what's your, you know, uh, a console in terms of identifying whether, whether or not it's a good fit? Yeah, I'll dig back into uh, to my background a bit. So I, I, I spent two years at Amazon, and I think over 20 years, Amazon's done a pretty good job of uh, being able to identify kind of fast growth, high scaling, particularly operational talent. And so when we started Uber Freight, I, I did lean on that in, in the sense that they have a very well-defined leadership principles and uh, defining the exact capabilities you need for these types of roles. And so we've kind of taken and tailored that and Uber has its own set, set of principles and evolved that. Uh, but I think the fundamentals of what define a very entrepreneurial operational leader that could come in and scale a team like that are pretty consistent. And I look for, as an example, uh, bias for action. This is somebody that is always going to uh, step in front of a problem and proactively identify problems and work quickly to resolve them and have they demonstrate that over their history. Are they very data-driven? Do they, uh, do they look to the numbers to guide them, but you know, while also moving quickly when they need to? Uh, can they operationalize? So they have a proven history of actually managing to metrics and being able to improve those metrics and putting action plans uh, behind them. We also, I'd say, very much value kind of innovation and thinking big and vision. So is this somebody that's creative and a creative problem solver? And have they, again, demonstrated that throughout their history? Um, and then in terms of... Uh, managerial uh, capabilities, right? Number one, are they empathetic? Are they a good listener? Do they uh, listen to their team, right? Are they empowered? Do they have, have they, have, do they have the ability to empower their team and kind of uh, uh, let them run? Because I'd say the number one management skill uh, and competency for hyperscaling is delegation and providing autonomy because there's no way that uh, when you're going from one person to 100, along the way, you have, to, you have to be able to let go, right? You have to be able to make sure that you're empowering your team and putting the right controls in where you don't have to get into the weeds because that, that limits your scale. The more you feel like you have to get into it, the more limiting uh, you are in terms of your own ability to scale and scope and impact. So, um, so yeah, I think the, um, 
at this point, we've got a pretty good, we've got a pretty good sense of that. It's something that we continue to tune and, and have conversations around and, uh, you know, work internally to make sure that we have the right approach to hiring and that we're also supporting our people and giving them the infrastructure to succeed. Um, so. mm. and, and how about the future? Let's say if I have 10 years on the line, how, how do you see the skills that the, and what type of skills and, and, um, and future uh, type of abilities do you see needed in the industry? Or no? Do you see more and more of the data tech, um, data scientist type of skills as being needed automation? You know, you know what type of, uh, I get a, this question a lot, especially from, from people. I mean, when I speak uh, and I get called to speak at universities or young graduates or MBA, even MBA graduates sometimes ask, you know, like what should be focused on to stay relevant, right? So what do you think? Five, 10 years down the line, what kind of skills would make you relevant, would make you stay relevant? So I think data science and all the associated skills below that will become increasingly important. I think the rigor of analysis will continue to evolve. Um, just looking at how our internal operations and have shifted uh, in the brief time we've been in the market, as we have automated more and more, gathered more and more data, the analysis has become more and more important and we've continued to scale out our uh, data science and our analytical capability. So I think then one, le one layer back would be just core data competencies. So um, I think having a fundamental, you know, Excel and SQL or Google Docs competency, I think that's been a kind of a baseline capability for 10 years now in terms of being able to kind of participate in this industry and really drive solutions forward. Uh, but I think that will only become more and more important. And with that, engineering and computer science, right? if, I, if I had gone back 20 years and started over, I probably would, would have, uh, you know, knowing what I know now, I would have picked uh, computer science. It's just, you know, the future becomes more and more driven uh, by, uh, by software. And then as we automate and streamline operations, then it becomes more and more important to understand the operations, which is where the data competency, the data science comes into play. Um, Beyond that, I'm still a, a huge believer that selling is a fundamental skill that any entrepreneur um, and a good seller is a problem solver. But as the industry and as the problems become uh, more data rich and more complicated, I think salesmanship and how people sell within this industry and the conversations that they have will become much more consultative um, and much more solution oriented. So I'd say consultative selling, being able to think systematically about problems, being able to have these very high-level conversations with carriers and shippers uh, will become more and more important. Uh, because I think what will happen and what we're seeing even within our, uh, within our operations is the, the transactional management side of it, the kind of short cycle selling where the lower touch and lower complexity side of it is uh, becoming more and more automated and more and more streamlined. But the more complex salesmanship, the more complex analysis and the core engineering, um, that doesn't go away, right? That just becomes increasingly important. Yes. Final question from me. Um, what's the best piece of advice that you've received throughout your career? Yeah, one of my favorite quotes, which was shared with me uh, early on by my first manager, is, it is amazing what you can accomplish if you don't care who gets the credit. 
It's been attributed to Truman. Uh, I've seen various versions of it attributed to different different people. Um, but for me, while I, I, I do believe it's important to advocate for yourself and periodically kind of poke your head up from your work and say, hey, here's what I've done. I believe that if your core obsession is ensuring that you do great work and that the right thing always gets done regardless of who does it or who gets credit, you'll always go much farther in life. Uh, the more you focus on the work, the more you celebrate others, the more advocates you build along the way so that when you do poke your head up and talk to leadership, they already know the story. Yes. Um, no, I mean, it's, it's, it's very true, and thanks for sharing that. And I think, um, <laughs> I think in a lot of, uh, let's say, bigger corporate environments, um, there's a lot of people that uh, forget that, and it's, it's a lot more about yeah. politics and playing games than it is about getting stuff done. And that's obviously also the reason why companies fail, ultimately. But, uh, uh, yeah, great sharing, and, and thanks for, uh, thanks for um, uh, sharing that with us. Uh, Bill, it's been a pleasure to have you. Uh, appreciate all the different uh, uh, relevant case studies and, and, and being very open about where you are and how you plan to grow uh, Uber Freight. And we wish you all the best and, uh, and, and keep growing, keep developing, uh, keep attracting good, uh, good people to the team to, to, grow you, uh, to grow it further. And, you know, we'll, we'll be back in touch in a few years and I'll look forward to the new, you know, to the new stories and, uh, and to the new success uh, case studies of, of Uber Freight. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you liked what you heard, be sure to follow us on radopalamaru.com slash podcast for all the show notes, links, and extra tips covered in the interview. Make sure also to subscribe to our emailing list to get the news in the nick of time. If you're listening through a streaming platform like iTunes or Stitcher and you like what we do, please kindly review and give us five stars so we can keep the energy flowing and get more people to find out about our podcast. I'm most active on LinkedIn, so do feel free to follow me to stay tuned for our latest articles as well as future guests for the podcast. And if you have any suggestions or any other idea, please feel free to write to me. I respond to all. And also, please make sure not to miss our next episode where we will be having a few other C-level and top leaders in supply chain joining us. Stay tuned.